At the heart of the Holy Family is, of course, Christ himself. He is the reason that that family was brought into existence, that the Immaculate Virgin was conceived immaculately through a special grace and intervention of God at that first moment of her life, that Joseph was selected by God in some way, the details of which are not known to us, but the heart of that family which the Father had assembled, uh, the heart is Christ. He is the reason for the existence of the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And so at the heart of, of our prayer throughout this retreat has to be the very same reality, learning from Christ so that he could be the center of our family and first and foremost be the center of our own life because he can't be the center of family life unless he's the center of every life in the family. And there's so much really about the Christian life that can be reduced to simply this, that our life is, consists in uniting ourselves to the life of Christ, who is perfect God and perfect man. And by dealing with him more and more each day in our prayer and our thoughts, our desires. Um, we can't forget the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. This is in John chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now there's no hemming and hawing about that. We can't approach our Father God on our own. It is only through Christ that we can approach him. And we're so grateful that the Lord has given us faith and that he's made it possible for us to know him, to love him and to serve him. And when we consider the centrality of Christ, especially in his sacred humanity, because that's how we come to know him. We come to know him in his incarnate, through his incarnate nature, having taken on our human nature, which doesn't replace his divine nature, but in a certain sense makes it visible to us. Um, I do think it's important that any time we, we go down this path in contemplation, that we always just pause for a moment uh, to renew our understanding of Christ's identity. We profess in the, in the creed that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. We profess that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is both true God and true man, that he is a divine person who has a divine nature and a human nature. It's important that we understand one thing very clearly. Jesus is not a human person. We can say he's a human being because he has a human nature, but he's not a human person. He is a divine person. He can't be two persons. He'd be kind of schizophrenic. Uh, multiple personality disorder. We chuckle about that, but we also know that's a very serious kind of disturbance in the life of a person. They're confused about their identity. 
And a lot of people today are confused about their identity. You know, if a, if a three-year-old boy, maybe one of your children or grandchildren, um, crawls around on his hands and knees around the house barking, pretending he's a dog, his parents think that's cute. And it's kind of cute. There's a little kid in the parish who, um, who's kind of beginning to outgrow this, but it seemed as though every Sunday at Mass he was a different animal. And so one Sunday he'd be barking, another Sunday he'd be making kind of hooting noises like an elephant tooting, you know, his trunk. Um, you know, one Sunday he was a lion. That's cute when you're a little, you know, two-year-old. And, uh, and of course, little girls pretend they're princesses and who knows what else. But you know, when you're 16 and you're crawling around barking, thinking you're a dog, that's not funny, there's something wrong. That shows that this person doesn't have a clear view of their identity. There's some, there's some neurosis there or some a lack of balance. So, you know, Jesus is a divine person with a divine nature and a human nature. And a way of kind of translating that into into normal English is that the philosophical category of, of person answers the question who, and the category of nature answers the question what. And so a, a young child may point to another adult and say, what is that? Well, that's another human being. But who is that? Well, that's Joe who lives down the street. So we can point at Jesus and say, what is that? Well, that's both God and man. We know he's man because we can observe, if we had lived you know, in his time, we can observe the outward appearance of human being, right? But we'd also, we also know by faith that he has a, a divine nature. And we'd be able to get glimpses of that uh, if we witnessed his miracles, or if we were like Peter, James, and John and saw him transfigured on Mount Tabor. You know, it's interesting, just as an aside, the little stand that the monstrance goes on, maybe uh, we, there's one used here for adoration, you'll see it again this afternoon, kind of elevates the monstrance. The monstrance is the large vessel that holds the host. It comes from the Latin word monstrare, which means to show. It's the thing that shows the host. And it sits on this little stand um, and you may have it in your parish if you have adoration. A lot of places would, would just place the monstrance right on the altar, but it's just another way of kind of adding a little dignity and emphasis to the monstrance by elevating it a bit. You know, that, 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 uh, that uh, object, that stand, is called a tabor, like Mount Tabor. Hmm, little Catholic trivia for you, because it kind of elevates as the Mount Tabor elevated, as Christ was elevated in a sense on Mount Tabor and his glory was shown there to Peter, James, and John. So that Mount Tabor is kind of recreated for us a little bit when we use that stand uh, to hold the monstrance. Something to file away as a little kind of point of contemplation. We can imagine during adoration this afternoon that we're like Peter, James, and John uh, on top of that mountain at the time of the transfiguration because it's the same Christ who's present for us in the Holy Eucharist and adoration as there was present on the mountain there in, uh, in the Holy Land. Um, but if we're, we could look at Jesus and say, well, 
what is that? It is, well, it's, he, so one who is true God and true man, but who is he? He is God. He is a divine person. So Jesus' identity is, is as a divine person. So even in his human nature, in his human mind, and we, knew that, we know that Christ has acquired knowledge in his human nature. What does St. Paul says? He became like us in all things but sin. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus went down to Nazareth. Um, this is in, um, in uh, Matthew. That Jesus went down to Nazareth, um, was obedient to Mary and Joseph, and he grew in grace and knowledge before God and man. So he has acquired human knowledge. Now, in his divine nature, he has perfect knowledge of everything. You know, he's omnipotent. But in becoming incarnate, the Lord also has a human soul, which means a human intellect and a human will. His divine nature, his divine person does not take the place of the human soul. He has a human soul as well. And in his human intellect, he grows and and he grows in experiential knowledge, which is the knowledge we acquire from our circumstances and our what happens in our life, as, as well as kind of the knowledge that we get from reading and instruction. That's experiential knowledge. And how these modes of knowing are kind of separate in his two natures while united in his one divine person is a bit of a mystery. We're not really sure how all that works. Uh, and there's been a lot of theological kind of speculation about that over the centuries. But we can say, at the very minimum, we can say this is something we should never, ever lose sight of. Even in his human nature, Jesus always knew himself as a divine person. He never knew himself as a human person because he's not a human person. He always knew himself and continues to know himself as a divine person, even in his human nature. So according to his human capacity to know himself, and that capacity would have grown and developed in the normal human trajectory, he always knew himself as a divine person. So it was not as though Jesus suddenly realized when he was baptized by John in the Jordan, oh, wow, I'm really God. I never knew that before. You know, my mom always told me I was great, and my grandmother thought I was super duper because I was the only grandchild. But... Um, but I really am God, so all those stories are true. Wow, this is neat. He always knew himself as God. It's not as though, he, you know, Easter Sunday he wakes up and says, man, I'm alive, wow, who, who would have ever thought? I really am God. No, that's, all that's ridiculous. He always knew himself as God. And again, we have to preface that and kind of modify that statement. But in his human nature, in his human mind, he always knew himself as God according to his capacity to know himself because he would have grown in his human nature. Now, his divine nature is something else, obviously. Um, it's a little bit confusing, but that's a point of clarity we should always cling to. Jesus is a divine person, and in his human nature, he always knew himself as a divine person. Otherwise, again, he'd have kind of multiple personality disorder. Doesn't really set the stage for an effective savior. And, you know, I think it's worth contemplating that because when we contemplate the mystery of the word incarnate in the gospel, and again, another point we always want to remember 
is that once Jesus is incarnate, once the Son of God becomes incarnate, he's incarnate for all eternity. Jesus is true God and true man for all eternity. He doesn't leave his human nature behind. He doesn't drop it. After he ascends into heaven, it's not like he unzips the bodysuit, say, man, that was so hot and sweaty, I'm glad I'm out of that thing, you know. Um, like someone who's happy to take off a heavy coat when they come into a warm building if it's cold outside. That's not something Southern Californians do very often, I don't think. But so he's, he'll, he will always be uh, the incarnate Son of God. He, he will never give up his human nature. It is now inextricably linked and bound to his divine person for all eternity. But we do, we do well to consider this mystery, the word made flesh, the word incarnate. Why? Well, as a way of more deeply understanding the tremendous value of earthly things, especially for the person who's been reborn in Christ through baptism. That earthly things, and we'll talk about this as our retreat unfolds a little bit, our way of sanctification and growing in the love of God. And we know that because as an incarnate God, incarnate means to take flesh from the Latin word for flesh, carne. And if you speak Spanish, you know that's kind of it's the same word. That, that taking on our human nature and leading a life that was largely hidden from the world until the last three years of his time on this earth, that was all that time was not wasted. None of that time was wasted. In fact, I think we can conclude quite rightly that the that one of the chief purposes of Christ's mission on this earth was to teach us by those thirty years of work in Nazareth that normal things are important and can be sanctified and can be made holy. That the normal things of our life are important. They're not to be disregarded. They can be filled with love and purpose. We don't have to be doing, quote unquote, great things in the eyes of the world in order for our life to have significance. When we look back on our own life and the people that influenced us, that in, in a good way, that influence often came through just normal things. Parents spending time with us, our grandmothers, sneaking us cookies when our moms weren't looking, um, a teacher who helped us in some particular way. It may not, you know, it may not be anything you know, terribly important uh, in the eyes of the world, but a moment in which we had the confidence of someone, we had the love of someone, we had the support of someone that helped us helped and gave us a foundation that is still operative in our life today. So the Lord wants to teach us, and this is the first lesson, I think, of his sacred humanity within the Holy Family for us, is that, you know, normal things are important. Taking care of the home is important. Educating our children is important. Being kind to our neighbor is important. Being a, a, a cooperative and good and helpful fellow worker, whether we're working as a volunteer, working in a professional capacity somewhere, that these things are important. Um, regardless of our professional work, whatever it is, whether we run a, a multinational corporation, 
whether we're in uh, whether we're in law or healthcare, whether we're in kind of secretarial support, administrative support, or doing any other kind of job, you know, in sales or maybe we're volunteering for some group in the parish or in our community. We're not doing that just to fill our day, and we're not doing it just to earn a living, although earning a living is important and good, obviously, and necessary. But we also, we can, those things can be transformed. Even if our, our professional work or the work that we do around the home is sometimes a bit of a drudge and, and maybe not exciting for us or dull and boring and uninteresting at a kind of a human level. We may not be able to change that, but we can change our orientation or our interior orientation to those tasks and to that work. Um, you know, Jesus is described as a carpenter in the Gospels, or, or the son of a carpenter. So it's presumed that he took up Joseph's trade and that Joseph trained him in the work that he himself was doing. The, um, the Greek word that is used, that's translated most frequently as carpenter, is the word tekton. You know, we get the word tectonics and stuff like that, for other cognates from that word. Tekton, which can also be translated builder. So, and, and, it's, and a lot of, uh, uh, some scripture scholars anyway, wonder whether or not um, Jesus was really, and Joseph were really more like stonemasons or bricklayers. And maybe carpentry was a part of it. Maybe they're just builders in general. Uh, in fact, there's, a, there is the, there's the ruins of a, of a Roman city that was being built at the time that the Lord was growing up. I mean, they had been built maybe a century before um, within walking distance of Nazareth. And uh, some scripture scholars have, and historians have wondered whether or not many of the men in, in, in Nazareth found their work at this town, which was maybe a five-mile walk from Nazareth, not a huge distance. You could easily cover that in the morning and then come back in the afternoon, especially in time when people were used to walking longer distances than we are. And at the time that Christ was growing up in Nazareth, the arena, and we know this was a, a pagan city, a Roman or Gentile city, because it did have all the appurtenances of a Roman town. It had like a, an arena there where the public games could be held and, and some pagan temples and whatnot. Some have speculated that the men of Nazareth, that may have included Jesus and Joseph, worked on that arena, which is in ruins now. But they worked on that structure, laying the brick and the stone for it. I mean, that's really, can you imagine? I've not been there, but going to that place and saying, well, it's possible that the eternal Son of God actually put these bricks down here or mixed the mortar, or helped cut the stones. I mean, who knows? But it's certainly worth contemplating. And the point is that, that he did all of these things both as God and man, which means he could take the most normal human circumstances in reality and sanctify them. So if we're going to, I think the most important lesson, or the central lesson in, in meditating upon, or learning from the sacred humanity of Christ is that he teaches us how to sanctify or make holy the normal things of our life. So that holiness, quote-unquote, or devotion, quote-unquote, is not limited to moments of prayer, formal prayer. It's not limited 
to taking a retreat. It's not limited to going to mass or the sacraments or our devotions. Those are all important things and they all contribute to our life of faith. But it's not, it's not as though our life of faith is only operative and active and useful and fruitful when we're on retreat. We hope this retreat, you know, is kind of uh, a time to, to have be re-injected with some spiritual energy and food, right? That we can then take with us as we return back to the normal things of our life so that we can elevate them. Well, how do we elevate our normal work? Again, whatever, any kind of purposeful human activity that is good um, can be classified as human work, whether it's making the bed, whether it's you know, driving to work, whether it's filing papers, whether it's um, attending to a patient or to a customer, all forms of human work. Well, how do we sanctify them? Well, first of all, we offer them to God. We want to offer our work to God, an interior act on our part, Lord. And most of us, when we were children, learned a, an act of morning offering. We say, it, we say it when we get up in the morning. You might even have it on the mirror, you know, in your, in your bathroom or on the refrigerator. It's good to renew that throughout the day so it doesn't just become kind of routine. Because I don't know, the first time I see the morning offering in the morning, sort of, uh, and it's okay, what did I say? I gotta repeat that again. Because sometimes, you know, for many people, waking up is a process, it's not a moment. So it may take a little bit longer than we would like it to take, depending upon the day and what happened the night before and everything else. So the morning offering is something we can repeat throughout the day. So we offer what we have to God, which means we're offering our work, all of our activities. And if we're offering something to God, we want to offer him the best we can give. We're not offering him the leftovers. We give the leftovers to the dog, you know, and the dog is happy to have it. But we, we don't want to give God the leftovers. We want to give him the first fruits. Which means when we're doing our work, we want to do it well. We want to do it with full attention. We want to not only start, but also complete the work we do. I think it's a, lot, it's a lot easier to start than to complete something. You know, anyone who's ever remodeled their kitchen knows, or tried to paint the house by themselves knows, it's easy to start something. It's really hard to finish it and to get it done and to wrap it up, you know, in a nice bow and have it complete. Everyone loves putting up the Christmas tree. Nobody likes taking it down. You know, and wrapping all the ornaments or storing them whatever way people have so they're preserved for the next year. So, you know, to offer our work well means to start it punctually, to start it well, but also to finish it well. And it means that what we're doing is something in itself good. We can't sanctify robbing a bank, you know, or shoplifting uh, or cursing at someone on the freeway. That can't be sanctified. But instead, what can be sanctified are our relations with other people that we try to infuse with virtue so that we're always looking for the good of the other person. Again, remember, we want to overcome evil by an abundance of good. And so one of the ways we sanctify our relations with other people, whether it's the husband or the children, people with whom we work, our neighbor who maybe annoys, annoys us a little bit, um, is to infuse all of those relationships with virtue, especially with the virtue of charity, so that we're looking for the good of the other person. You know, the, um, uh, a friend of mine was asked to give the um, uh, commencement address at a school. It was a, 
eighth grade graduation, I think. And, and, and the speaker, this person, um, proposed two questions that the kids should ask themselves every day. And I think it's great whether we're an adult, a kid, whether we're eight or 80, this, these are two great questions. Who can I help today? And who can I thank today? Can you imagine if we lived our life and, and we really took those two questions seriously every single day and maybe kind of used it as a little examination of conscience throughout the day? Who can I help today? And who can I thank today? And we have to make that very concrete. And we can't excuse ourselves from saying, oh, I help everybody. <laughs> so it's about time people started helping me. So I'm not going to, you know, I've done enough helping. And that's keeping score, you know. Okay, well, let me see. I did all these things for my husband today. His column is still a big fat zero for what he's done for me. So, and of course, he has his own list, too, and he says the same thing to himself. I've done all these things for my wife today, and she's done a big fat zero for me. I don't think either list is entirely accurate. Um, this, that kind of keeping score, you know, is not helpful to us because then we're putting ourselves in the center of everything. And it's not just with a marriage, it can be with a friendship, it can be with work, it can be all sorts of things, you know. Uh, why should I have to clean, the, wash the dishes today? It's not my turn. Why should I have to do these other things? Even though this is nothing hard, it's the, I'm standing on my principles, I'm not bringing in those garbage cans from outside, it's not my turn to do it. So I'm gonna just let them sit there and we look out the window, we keep staring at them thinking that, you know, someone needs to bring them in, but they're not doing it for whatever reason. They forgot or they, maybe they're saying the same thing to themselves. I brought them in the last time. I'm not bringing them in this time. And it becomes a big stand. Well, why don't we just bring them in? It's no big deal. A little sacrifice we can offer, an act of charity, an act of generosity. Who can I help today? And who can I thank today? Can you imagine uh, Jesus growing up in the Holy Family, uh, having those two thoughts in his mind? I'm sure he did. How can I help my mom today? How can I help my dad, foster father? How can I help him today? How can I, who should I thank today? You know, when people thank us, we're really appreciative of it. Because, um, you know, without having, it doesn't, I don't think it inflates our head too much. I don't think it's a, a danger to the growth of, you know, something that, to guard against in terms of our pride. Um, but, you know, we like to be thanked. How many people, this is particularly true for grandmothers. God bless our grandmothers. Sometimes, you know, grandmother will send a card or a present to one of their little barbarian grandchildren. <laughs> and maybe they don't hear anything back for a while. And then grandma calls up the daughter or the son and says, you know, did little Johnny get that enormously expensive toy that I sent him? I'm just worried because I haven't heard anything and I wonder if it's been lost in the mail. Oh no, mommy got it. Yeah, I got it, it's fine. And, and what grandma's really saying is, what's wrong with that little barbarian? <laughs> haven't you taught him to write a thank you note? And if he's only five years old and can't write a thank you note, shouldn't you get off your duff and call me and let him talk to me on the phone and say, oh, Grandma, that's the greatest present I've ever gotten in the whole world? 
because I know you sent it to me because you love me and I love you so much and you're great and next year I'd like, no, you know. So kind of fishing for thanks. At the same time trying to teach someone who's younger, it's important to give thanks and, and to acknowledge things that are helpful. I know a priest who had a seminarian with him for, this was many years ago, had a seminarian with him for uh, the Christmas break in the seminary. The seminarian, the seminarian came to live in the parish, and the priest uh, had him in his office one day, and he said to him, I'll just call the seminarian John. He said, John, you see that little stack of, of notes on my desk? Yeah, those are the thank you notes I've written today. And this was, I think, the seminarian's first day in the parish. He said, you know, people are very generous. And, you know, they, they know you're going to be here and you're helping out with the liturgies and whatnot, but you're also kind of doing little things and, you know, you'll get to know some people and they'll want to give you something for Christmas. They won't give you much. They may give you, you know, a plate of cookies or they might get you a gift card or something for um, Amazon or some other thing. And... Um, Make sure if someone puts some cookies in your hands or gives you a little gift, make sure that their name, because you won't know them necessarily, their name and their address is on the card or something, or at least their name and check with the secretary to get their address off of the, off of the uh, parish rolls. And make sure you write them that day, write them a thank you note. Now, I write these every day, he said in the days before Christmas, because people drop things off all the time, or they give little gifts, or a book, or you know, gift cards, and things like that. And he said, if I don't write you know, five a day when I get five plates of cookies, that's why priests are always so you know, hefty, <laughs> um, then I, you know, I know that after the new year, I'm, just, it's, I'm not gonna have time to write 50 thank you notes. And it'll seem like a burden. So every day I write three or four as the things come in. That way I remember to do it too. So you get a gift, you write a thank you note that day. Here's a stack of cards. <laughs> and make sure you do it. But he said, you know, there's nothing worse than an ungrateful priest or an ungrateful seminarian. Because people make a lot of sacrifices. To, and even if the small sacrifices are important. So there's nothing worse than being ungrateful. And so this guy did. He wrote... You know, and, and of course, everyone thought he was such a gentleman because he would write a thank you note for all these little gifts of cookies and cakes and things. I don't think he received too many gifts, but enough to make uh, an impression with those thank you notes. And I, I guess this guy has continued to do that. But who can I thank today and who can I help today? Because when we think about it, the, the, the quest for holiness can't be reduced merely to fighting against sin. I mean, that's a part of it. We have to overcome our vices. We have to avoid occasions of sin. We don't want to put our soul in danger in certain times or places. But that's, that's not the heart of the, of the quest for holiness. I mean, the quest for holiness is rooted in, in one thing, and that's growing in the love of God. That's where we have to put our attention and if we want to grow in the love of God, we have to try to love as God loves. And how does God love? Well, he teaches us through Christ how to love. And, and we can see through his, imagine even through his human life and his family, 
that that love was also often embodied in the way he lived charity and the way he lived thankfulness. So maybe those are the, that's a lesson we can take with us. We maybe contemplate a bit today. If there are two questions we write down for an examination of conscience, we can keep every day. Who can I help today? Who can I thank today? And uh, if we have that kind of at the heart of our relations with others, we'll see that even people who are a little difficult to deal with, not that we would ever be difficult to deal with, right? But when people are a little bit difficult to deal with, just because, you know, they're having a bad day, human weakness, we all know what that's like, that maybe a little act of charity can tr- tr- turn their whole day around. Maybe a little act of gratitude can help them get out of whatever kind of abyss or that they're in at that particular moment. Um, and then we can become a, someone who sows peace and joy rather than someone who uproots those virtues. Well, let's consider those things as we come and prepare ourselves for Mass, which is the ultimate thanksgiving. You know, the word Eucharist is, it comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. is the thanksgiving of the church offered to God the Father through the Holy Spirit and in which the in which Christ himself is offered. So we pray that we can become more thankful, more grateful, more helpful to those around us and that we can, in the kind of family life of our own heart, our relationship with God, have uh, this desire to sanctify all things in our, our kind of orbit uh, by the practice of those virtues so that... Uh, Even the most mundane things filled with charity can become instruments of living more and more each day the holiness of God.